Welcome to some more great Bible preaching from the pulpit of Capital City Baptist Church in the heart of Austin, Texas. Our prayer is that your relationship with Christ is strengthened and that you are blessed by the time you spend in the Word of God with us today. Judges chapter number 2, I'll begin reading in verse 10 down through verse number 10. Verse 10 will be my text for tonight. The book of Judges in the second chapter, verse number 1, the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. For they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. It came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. They called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. They buried him on the border of his inheritance in timnath Hiraz, in the mountain of Ephraim, on the north side of the Hogeish. And also all that generation were gathered under their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Verse 10 says that that generation were gathered unto their fathers and there arose another generation after them and that generation knew not the Lord nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. I want to preach particularly to our young people tonight. I want to preach on the dangers of second generation Christianity. When the sons of Jacob went into Egypt at the close of the book of Genesis, they went in as a family. When they came out of Egypt at the beginning of Exodus, they came out as a nation. In the 400 plus years in between, they had multiplied to several million strong and were called by the term children of Israel. It was the first generation of the nation of Israel that came out of Egypt and entered into what we call the wilderness wanderings. They would wander for 40 years and then God would bring them into the possession of the promised land. But from studying Israelite history, we know that not every Hebrew that came out of Egypt actually made it into the promised land. In fact, only two. Of the original two to three million that came out of Egypt actually entered into Canaan. Every Jew that crossed the Red Sea was the first generation of a 
new nation. But because of their murmuring in the wilderness, God allowed them to die in the wilderness. And God promised that first generation that you're going to die in the wilderness. It will be your sons and sons' sons that will enter into Canaan. Only your children and grandchildren will actually inherit the land. It was the first generation that crossed the Red Sea. It was the second generation that crossed the Jordan River. Most of the five books of Moses are taken up with the history of that first generation. When you come to the book of Joshua, it is the description of the possession of the promised land. That's the story of the second generation. Then you come to the book of Judges, and that second generation is passing off the scene. Verse 10 says that that generation were gathered under their father. The first generation had died in the wilderness. The second generation is now grown old, represented by Joshua, and they are passing away. The book of Judges then tells the story of the third generation. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, the record is alarming. Because down through the years and over the generations, something has been lost. And the third generation of the book of Judges resembles nothing of the first generation. We can go back to the books of Moses and we can see that the first generation certainly was not perfect. They had their problems. But they were much more obedient to God than the generation in the book of Judges. The third generation in the book of Judges is idolatrous. They're apostate. They are completely devoid of God. And something has been lost between generations. I thank God tonight that I am a second generation Christian. My mom and dad, you know my dad, my mom and dad were raised in good moral homes, but not necessarily Christian homes. They both got saved in their teen years. My dad got saved when he was 18, surrendered to preach, and surrendered to preach in a free will Baptist church. That's how he started out. My dad's first sermon, he preached from Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 18, as a kid preacher, and he tried to preach, trying to prove you can lose your salvation. I don't know how he did it out of that verse. That was his first message he ever preached. My dad's been in the ministry for over 40 years. He's the most honest, the most faithful. He's the godliest man that I know. And I've got to tell you that being raised in a Christian home and being a second-generation Christian is a blessing. I was raised in a preacher's home all of my life, and I've, I've never been involved in deep, dark sin, and I've never drank, I've never smoked, I've never chewed, I, uh, we've never gone to the movies, and, and there was a blessing in having that godly heritage and to be able to raise your children in the same way. We have no doubt in this audience we have folks who are first generation Christians and we have second generation Christians. A first-generation Christian would be somebody who has what we would say who has gotten saved out of the world. Uh, you weren't raised in a Christian home. Uh, you didn't go to a Christian school. You weren't brought to church as a child. Or maybe you were raised in some kind of cultic religion. In fact, some of you, you may be the only Christian in your family. Well, there's a large majority of you tonight that you were saved in a, out of a Christian background and your testimony would be a lot like mine, taken to church since an infant, both parents Christians in our home, as, as much Christian as it was anything else. 
Christianity was, was the very fabric of my home life from the very earliest memories. Um, Christianity was as much about what we were as anything else. And if you have that testimony, you ought to bless the Lord tonight that you have the encouragement of your family, that you have a godly heritage behind you, that you've been taught the word of God from your earliest childhood, and that you don't have the memories of living in sin, and you don't have to fight with family members who don't support your Christian faith. It is a wonderful thing to be able to say that I am a second-generation Christian. But I submit to you tonight that there is a danger Second-generation Christianity. At our church, we have at least three different generations. We have senior saints, folks who have served the Lord longer than I've been alive. We've got a man in our church that started the Anchorage Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska, all over uh, the Northwest, and, and a godly, godly man. Uh, we have a lady in our church uh, who has been saved longer than I have been on this earth. And then in our church, we have a midlifer group and folks that are, that are my age. And, and I've noticed that that older generation that's walked with God 50 and 60 years, that, that they're strong. There's no, there's no danger that they're going to be carried away by some new doctrine and, and they're not going to go to contemporary music and they're not looking for another Bible and, and they're, not, they're not looking for anything new. And that generation gives a lot of stability and strength to our church because if we did want to change, they would hold our feet to the fire. I thank God for them. But we have that middle-aged group that would be my generation and they're faithful and they're giving and they're serving and they're separated. They don't have quite the age. They're not quite as hardcore as that older generation. And then in our church, we have a lot of young families, 20-year-old kids, just starting to have babies and just starting to start their own families and they're growing and they're learning and they're doing good. But there's just something missing. They're, they're the ones that are a lot quicker to work on Sunday than that older generation. Uh, they're, they're givers, but they're not sacrificial givers. Do you know what I'm saying tonight? They're, they're good. Thank God for them. They're there, but there's just an edge. There's, a, there's just something that seems to be missing between the generations. And when you read the book of Judges, you recognize that the generation of the book of Judges is so much different from the generation of, of Joshua. And that generation is so much different from the generation that came out of Egypt. And this generation in Judges, which knew not the Lord, will very soon at the end of the book descend into idolatry and anarchy. There is something missing between the generations. I look at the book of Judges and I have to ask, what's missing? What? several things I'd like to identify for you just as a survey of the book. I think first of all that this generation has lost the wonder of the miracles. They've lost the wonder of the miracles. The generation which followed Joshua has forgotten the mighty work that God did for their nation in the early beginning. The crossing of the Red Sea, the miraculous manner, the brazen serpent, the smitten rock, all of those mighty miracles were forgotten. In verse number 10, there is a statement that absolutely shocks me when it says at the latter part of verse 10, it says, this generation which knew not the Lord, but notice the next statement, nor yet the works which he had done for 
Israel. Is it possible that the third generation of Israel doesn't know about the manna in the wilderness? Is it possible that this generation doesn't know about the deliverance from Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea? Is it possible that this generation doesn't know the story of provision and protection that you and I are familiar with from reading the Old Testament? The Bible says that they knew not the works which God had done for Israel. This generation has not witnessed those miracles that they saw in the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, but they should have been instructed in them because the book of Deuteronomy gives several instructions to the fathers to sit down and teach your children and your grandchildren the works of God. Do not let them forget the miracles that I perform for this nation, but I think that they've probably heard the story so many times that it's gotten old to them, it's gotten wrote to them, and they've lost the one that God had done for their nation. I think they knew the stories, but they have lost the wonder. I submit to you that one of the dangers of second generation Christianity is when we lose the wonder of our doctrine. When there's not as great value placed on the truth. You know, on an average, the greatest Christians come out of the worst cults. Did you know that? If you can get somebody saved out of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or the Catholics, they typically are the most faithful Christians. They typically are the ones that are most on fire. And the reason why is because they have a greater appreciation for the truth. When they learn how perverted their former church's doctrine was and they get a hold of some truth, they esteem it with great respect and with great awe. But there is a generation in our churches tonight that has known nothing but the truth since they were born and our value of it is not as great. We do not have the heresy with which to compare our beliefs and it causes us to lose more quickly the wonder of his word. I tell you that there is no more thrilling doctrine in all of religion than Bible Christianity. I'm talking about doctrines like salvation by grace. Doctrines like justification by faith. Doctrines like the blood atonement. Doctrines like the virgin birth of Christ. Doctrines like the bodily resurrection. Doctrines like the literal, visible, sure return of Jesus Christ. But those who are the most familiar with those doctrines are the most bored with those doctrines as well. They don't thrill us anymore. We've got to have a quartet. We've got to have a choir. We've got to have something to pump us up because the truth of God's word does not thrill us any longer. We've heard it umpteen times before. I say that's why many churches apostatize after the first generation has passed away. It's because our fathers got their convictions with an open Bible and on their knees, but we got ours handed to us. And the first generation valued truth, but we are looking for unity over truth. And the danger of second generation Christianity is that we lose the thrill of knowing God. I love to preach to a brand new Christian that knows nothing. I mean, you bring somebody in that just gets saved off the street and he hadn't heard preaching all of his life, you can get up and preach the worst sermon in the world. He will think that he just heard Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You can preach John 3, 16, give three little points and a palm. He'll shout all the way to glory. But I tell you something, you try to preach to this generation who's heard three or four sermons a week for all of their life and you cannot hardly move them. They sit there and they look at you with a glazed stare and with their arms crossed and bless me as you can because I've already heard this a thousand times before. 
the second generation has a natural tendency to accept the status quo and to lose the vision of the first generation. And the problem is that too often the second generation experience is a second hand experience. And where our parents had fervor, it becomes the children's formalism and the grandchildren's apathy. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. It is the first generation of that church. There is no word of rebuke in that epistle because there is none needed. And in chapter 1, he says your faith is strong and your love is fervent and your service is commendable. That's the first generation. 30 or 40 years later, Pastor John writes another letter to the church at Ephesus. It's found in Revelation 2, verse 1 through 7. But this time, the, for the, the formality uh, has replaced place fervency and they're going through the motions and they're doing all of the right things but their heart is distant and they're cold and between the generations a fervent love for God has been lost. I tell you, this generation has lost the thrill of knowing God. When I, um, when I grew up my heroes were preachers. I lived back in the days of cassette tapes. You, you kids wouldn't know what cassette tapes are. And um, cassette tapes and long play albums, kind of like a giant CD. And uh, I remember as a kid, I would sit in my, in my bedroom and I'd listen to preaching all the time. And my heroes, my heroes were men like Lester Roloff and, and men like Mays Jackson and, and Ed Ballou and Harold Seitler and Ralph Sexton Sr. But we have a generation of young Christians who don't even know who those men are any longer. Those names are no longer household names. But I want you to know that those men had a touch of God on their lives and, and their lives and their preaching is what built me in the faith. And if the next generation does not see somebody and does not hear somebody with an anointing and an unction of God on their life, I tell you that they're not going to make it. I can still hear ringing in my ears R.G. Lee preaching payday someday. I can still hear Dr. Seitler preaching can God. I can still hear Lester Roloff preaching the mule walked on. I can still hear Mays Jackson preaching when God burns your barley field. But how in the world do we ever expect our children to have an awe of God when we don't have it? Our children are bombarded every day by worldly music playing and television blaring and Disney movies and radio talk shows and talk shows and all of those things may not be wrong but they do not build a child's faith and we give them three or four hours a week of church and with no reinforcement at home to compete with a constant bombarding of the ways and the philosophies of this world and we wonder why when they turn 13 that they don't want to have anything to do with God I'll tell you why they've never seen any miracles they've never witnessed the supernatural to them God is great but he's not wonderful Christianity is good but it is not essential and when you fail to instill in your children the wonder of knowing God, they'll take it for granted. There is a danger that you take for granted things that you don't have to sacrifice for. There's a danger that you take for granted things that you never pay a price for. There's a danger that you don't place as much value on that which you have never sacrificed for. Some of you sitting here tonight, you know what it is to suffer for the name of Christ. You know what it is to have your faith cost you something. Your family has rejected you. 
It could be that you're the black sheep of your family. You've had to stand alone. And those sufferings and those sacrifices has made your faith strong. But there is a generation here like my generation. We have had Christianity spoon-fed us from the very day of our birth. And we've never been laughed at. And we've never been ridiculed. And we've never lost anything because of our faith. And because our faith has never cost us anything, we take it for granted. That's the danger of second-generation Christianity that we become so familiar with the things of God that it becomes mundane and it becomes boring and we take for granted those things that we've never paid a price for. The danger of losing the wonder of knowing God. As I look at the book of Judges, there's a second thing that I think is pertinent for today and that is I think that they have lost respect for authority. One of the recurring themes in the book of Judges is their rebellion. Twice, twice it says that they did that which was right in their own eyes. Following the error of the judges, the people began to demand a king that they might be like other nations. Their demand for a king was rooted in their rebellion of God's authority. I am um, alarmed at how easily Bible-believing Christians disregard the law of God. I am amazed how easy it is for us to excuse and to justify our own carnality and wicked ways. It's as if the Bible holds no sway over our lives. We believe the Bible, but we are not about to let it dictate to how we live. Now you may get the idea that I'm a cynic and I'm not. I'm a realist. And I've come to believe after 20 years as pastoring in the same place that people do what they want to do. Doesn't matter how many times you preach, doesn't matter how clear you preach it, uh, I am convinced that you and I and my members of my church will commit just as much sin as we want to. We will indulge in just as much carnality and we will have as just as much spirituality as we want. You are as godly as you want to be. You have as much separation as you want to be. You have as much of the power of God on your life as you want to have. And I have preached in the same pulpit for 20 years and I preach to the same people year after year after year and some of them have failed to see one noticeable step of growth in their life. And you can preach a truth so plain that a blind man can see it but they are not about to alter their lifestyle because while we see it's our authority, it really is not. Tell you what the second generation must see. The second generation must see that we do not govern our own lives. They must see that we do right, we obey God, we live by the book regardless of what it costs us. They must see that there is a standard of right and wrong and we will not cross the line and we live this way because God said we are to live this way. And I fear that we instruct our children in the fundamentals of God, but we do not instruct them in the fear of God. We teach them by our instruction, but our example tells them that it is nothing more than an empty theory. And the second generation sees the hypocrisy of the first generation, and they understand it to mean that we don't really have to accept the authority of God's I believe that the principle of authority and submission to authority is the most fundamental principle of order in any society. You cannot have 
order and peace and security. You cannot have that in any society unless you have authority. There's no institution, there is no culture that can thrive without a proper regard to authority. By the way, we are facing an authority crisis in our nation. Question authority, it is more than a bumper sticker carried over from the hippie generation. It is the battle cry of the 21st century. If our society that we live in right now can be defined by one overriding characteristic, it has to be rebellion against authority. The morality crisis that is swallowing our nation is a result or the fruit of the authority crisis as the result of one generation throwing off the shackles of authority. The next generation has to reap the whirlwind of the anarchy. And the 21st century was welcomed by a generation of rebels who, who believing that true freedom comes from escaping authority challenges any claims to authority over their life. It is the world that we live in. They are not forced or taught authority in the home. They're not made to obey authority in the school. They're influenced by a rock culture to defy the authority of the civil government. They are going to die without recognizing, in the very least, the ultimate authority which belongs to God. It is the authority crisis that we're facing. The number one question of life is this. Who is in charge? Who gets the final say? Who gets to tell me how to live? The state the home, the school, the church, the job must have somebody who ultimately is in charge. I have taught my children respect for authority. Do not question authority. Don't question my authority. Don't question the teacher's authority. Don't question the coach's authority. Don't question the police officer's authority. Uh, there is an obligation to authority. It is good, it is pleasant, and it is right. Now here is the reason why I've done that. Because for the six, past 16 years, I have held this Bible up in front of my children. I have said, this is God's word. God wrote this, and in this, he tells you how you are to live. We believe the Bible, and we live the Bible. And I've told my children that this Bible is God's authority. It is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. This trumps everything. This is the end of every argument. This is the end of your opinions. This is the final say. If lesser authorities contradict with this, you stick with this. This is the authority. Then, if I ever contradict this in my life, if I have one point of hypocrisy in my life before them, if they ever see me disobey Bible commands and principles, then I am spitting in the wind. You see, it is by my life and the way that I live by this authority that I demonstrate to them that this is not just theory. It's not just theology. It is my life. I live this way because God said to. How will you ever, how will you ever expect your children to be biblical if you aren't? How will you ever expect them to accept this as their final authority if you don't? And by the way, they'll know whether you do or not. They've lost respect for authority. The best thing you could do as a parent is to allow this book to correct you in front of your children. You do not have to be perfect in front of them, but please do not be a hypocrite in front of them lost respect for authority. I look at this generation, what happened to them, I think that they've lost the will to conquer. The nation of Israel is to possess the land by driving out the Canaanites, trusting God for their victories. But the refrain of judges over and over is that they compromise with the enemy instead of conquering the enemy. 
They desired peace at any price. They did not have the will to fight. The generation that went before us knew what godly separation was. They had the courage of their convictions. They embraced the fact that they were peculiar, that they were out of place, that they were despised by the world, and they were not ashamed of what they believed and how they lived. But the generation that follows is more like the world than ever before. Now, I know that I'm preaching to the choir. I know what church I'm in. I know this point does not apply to this church at all. But I'm going to tell you, in other Baptist churches around the country, there's no distinction in our music. There's no distinction in our dress. There's no distinction in our entertainment. There's no distinction in our philosophy. We are more concerned that our children are accepted than that they are holy. The first generation went out into that world and they were forced to take a stand for their faith and they fought and they conquered. But the second generation went into the world incognito, hoping to win them by joining them. And that's why there's no power. That's why there's no edge. Our distinction was our advantage and we surrendered our strength when we lost the will to conquer. I must confess that I... I am disturbed in my spirit by what I see in our church. We've got a good church. Thank God for our youth. Thank man, man, they, they fill the front pews just like your kids do, and they sing in the youth choir, and, and, and I thank God for them. But on the whole, I must confess to you that I'm looking for something a little bit more than just good kids. And, and we've got good kids in our church, but I, on a whole, I don't see the fervency. I, I don't see hearts really burning for God. I, I don't see a, an absolute, total, sold-out surrender to God. I, I don't see that. And here's the problem that I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that their faith is not strong for the world. I look at them in home and I say they're great. When I look at them in the youth choir I think that they're great but there is coming a day when they're leaving home. There's coming a day when they're leaving the youth choir and they're going out into that world on their own and I'm not sure that the faith and that the fervency that they have, I'm not sure that that is going to be strong enough to sustain them in that world and I'm afraid that that's where we're losing that next generation and I say to you that it's not good enough just to be good and you can dress right and you can sit on the front pew and you can sing in the youth choir and you can sing the special music and thank God for that but I want to know does your heart burn for God I want to know as a young person do you ever get alone with God and pour your heart out to him I want to know do you ever cry out to God for him to take control of your life more than anything in this world and I am looking for a young man who will read his Bible without being told to I'm looking for a young man who knows how to get into a closet and pray and cry and beg for the power of God without somebody looking at him I'm looking for a young man who has a tender of heart, a man who has a desire for godliness, a young man who delights in preaching. I'm looking for a young man who will dare to be different, someone who's not afraid to take a stand against this world. I'm looking for a young man who will have, oh God, give me, a, give me just one young lady in our church, one young lady who will have a truly spiritual heart because I'm so tired of sham and show and I'm looking for a young lady that will love God more than she loves her boyfriend and that won't be so careless with her friends and that will be the same out there as she is in here. Oh God, we need a young person in our church. That's the next generation. That's the future of Capital City Baptist Church. It is the future of Victory Baptist Church. It is the future of our nation. We must have a generation of young people that know how to get a hold of God. I'm afraid that we, um, we overestimate our kids' spirituality. And we underestimate the pressures of the world. And most of the youth that I see in our churches are respectable, 
but they're not righteous. They've got enough of church to keep them in the way now, but they don't have enough to keep them in the way down the road. And mom and dad, I'm afraid that we've substituted success for spirituality. I listen to folks talk about their grown kids with pride. They've married a good mate. They've got a good job. They're climbing the corporate ladder. They're making lots of money. Never mind they don't go to church. Never mind they don't really give one whit for God. Never mind they've dropped all the standards they were raised with. Never mind they've joined some non-denominational club that passes itself as a church. Those things don't bother us as much as they should. We, 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 um, we take comfort. Their kids are heathen, but at least they're respectable heathen. We're watching second generations drift so far away from old-fashioned Christianity, and we seem content with it. And the second generation has lost the grit and the glory. And they don't have the standards and the convictions and the fervor and the commitment. And the second generation is soft and effeminate fleshly and carnal we lost something in the generations and I say to you oh God may my children have the faith of their grandfather and their father oh God help me as a parent not to remove the landmark and oh God help my children not to stray from what I've tried to teach them and oh God preserve Preserve for the future generation the glory of knowing God and the fervor of loving Him and knowing Him. And, oh, God, tonight I beg you, touch my kids. Oh, I've quit praying for God to use me, but, oh, God, use my kids. Oh, may my God, oh, may they know miracles, a miracle-working God. May they know fervor and fervency. Oh, may my kids find a hero that's been with God. May there be nothing lost between the generations. I wonder if there's a teenager. I wonder if there's a young person that would find their place on the altar tonight. And say, oh, God, touch me. Oh, God, put your hand upon me. Oh, God, I need your power, your unction tonight. Oh, God, it's still to me the wonder of knowing you, the courage of my convictions. You are our future. You must know God. You must get a hold of God. You must. You must know his touch. You must know how to get prayers answered. Oh, God, tonight, I pray that all across our lands and our churches that you would raise up another generation. Oh, God, put your hand upon them. These teen years that are so, so critical, rules is not enough. I, I can put rules on them. I, I can fit some in. Well, there has to be a relationship. It's not a good, good enough for them to know that daddy has an answer to prayer. But they must be able to know that you answer their prayers. Oh, God, to make touch, touch this next generation. We certainly hope that you've enjoyed this message today, but more importantly, we hope that the Lord has challenged you in some way to grow in your Christian life. For more information about our church, including directions and times of services, please visit our website at www.capitalcitybaptist.org.